Welcome, everybody. Great afternoon to be here and, you know, pouring with rain out there. Lovely and warm in here and you've hopefully got a glass of lovely Dog Point wine. It's my great pleasure to have um, this chance to talk to Diana, who I'm quite in awe of. Um, and most of you would know that Diana is a well-known, as a, a feature journalist for The Listener and television reviewer, now an award-winning author. This year, she won both the Royal Society to Aparangi Award for General Nonfiction and the E.H. McCormick F Best First Book Award at the Ockham Book Award. Her book, Driving to Treblinka, is a very personal account of a decades-long search for understanding about what happened to her father. All she knew was that he was a Polish Jew who had escaped from a train on its way to Treblinka, that he hid in the Polish forests until the war ended and when he was liberated by the Russians. He moved eventually to Canada, where he met Diana's mother, and tried to establish his life. His five siblings and his mother were on the same train, as him to Treblinka, not one of them survived. Diana, after years of being an interviewer, this is kind of probably really weird for you because now you are the subject of being interviewed. Is, is it hard for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a new empathy for my the subjects that I torment in my day job. But <laughs> yeah, but I remember um, the morning after the launch of the book, I had to make my way up to Radio New Zealand to talk to Kim Hill, of all people. <laughs> Can you imagine the terror? <laughs> I got the ferry over and I was so frightened, I even lost my way up to Hobson Street. If you know Auckland, that's not easy to lose your way. <laughs> so I arrive there, you know, and I sit down and she comes online, and I don't even know if we're on air, but we weren't at that point. And she says, hmm, the shoe's on the other foot now, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I said. <laughs> Do you find you really nervous about talking about this? Because it's a very personal story, but does it make you very nervous to, to open yourself up? Well, yeah, I mean, I've just avoided public speaking all my life, so... You're getting a crash course I'm now. I'm getting a crash course, <laughs> and I think, why? Did I, you know, if I'd only done it when you're supposed to do it, I wouldn't be... So, yeah, no, but I mean, people are very kind, and a festival like this, it's an amazing festival, and you couldn't help but feel welcomed and feel the warmth and the hospitality down here is just amazing, so thank you all very much. Well, we couldn't lovely. turn the weather on, so we turned the hospitality. <laughs> oh, it's just like Auckland, so we're used to that. <laughs> um, before we get into sort of questions, there's something I'd like to read a little piece from the prologue of this book, because it really resonated with me about what this book is about. The more I find out, the more it dawns on me that all this information so resistant to being assimilated will have to be shared with my family. No more secrets and silences. My grandchildren, so safe and trusting in their sunny Kiwi life, will one day know what can happen to a human soul. They may ask how this could have been allowed to happen. How did we let it happen? And I think, what have I done? What did, that, that is so moving. What did you mean by that? that well, I think, it, you know, the things that don't occur to you when you're busy living is that, you know, scrambling to find out this information. And, and I remember when I made a big hit, finally, and found what was going to be a really important part of the whole story, which was a file about my father. Um, you know, I was just, I remember I let out a yelp of glee and joy because, you know, as you do, you, you, it's a great thing. And then when the thing arrived, and I remember I was making my way home from work and I dawdled at the ferry building and Chris had sent me, an e and my partner had sent me a text that I somehow didn't pick up saying, 
there's a file sitting on the table at home. And he couldn't understand why I was sort of dawdling my way back home. And I got the text file, and I said, I, was, I wasn't going to have a glass of wine, but I will. And then I sat down and read this, and it, this feeling just came over me that, well, yes, it's, it's now I know. And it was very, very difficult reading. Um, and I have to share it with everyone. I mean, there's no way I wouldn't. Uh, so I knew it was going to be extremely hard for my siblings. But then it occurred to me my children would, would read it, and ultimately their children. And it did raise that question, is it better to know, or in some ways, better not to know? Um, and I'd lived with not knowing all those years. And for me as a journalist, there's no question for me. It's you have to know. If there's information out there, I need to know it. There's no way I could ignore it. But it's a valid question, and um, I do wonder about the effects it will have or has had on everyone. So how far with my children and my nieces and nephew, they've been very glad. Mm. That's all I can say. Is for them, it, it hasn't quite got the, um, the immediate they weren't the ones who were involved in what happened to him, mm. whereas I feel I was. So they haven't got the guilt and the, the you know, um, those feelings. Because and for those that don't know, did, um, Diana spent the first 13 years of her life in living in Canada with her mum and dad and her, her two siblings. And um, they, the mother, with the help of her, her own family, left Canada and came out to New Zealand. And the father... Ben was there to pack up and was supposed to come follow them back to New Zealand, but he never arrived. And so this is why it's the long search for him. It's not just that he was a survivor of the Second World War and the Holocaust. It was the fact of finding where was he, what mm. happened to him. Mm. So you last saw him at the age of 13, and, yes. and he'd said he was coming. Were there any signs looking back that maybe he wasn't going to follow you? Well, yes, but again, you know, you're 13 and you don't put two and two together. You just do what you're told. And it was a terrible time for our family. You know, we'd been going on the skids for the previous, as far as I was aware, a couple of years. We'd moved, sold a house, moved to a smaller house, sold that house. We were renting. And I found out later that my father wasn't going to work. He was just going and feeding the birds by that stage and then coming home. We didn't, I didn't know this. but And my mother, I knew, was in a terrible state. Um because my father was trying to keep it all together. He wouldn't let her, go. she asked, could she go out to work? No, um, he forbade her to see their friends. He'd cut himself off from everyone. I didn't know the full mm. story, but, and I suppose I was angry. I guess that's where part of the guilt comes in because um, to me, this behavior was breaking us all up or, or changing our lives. And I didn't understand where it was coming from or why it was happening. Um, yeah, so uh, I didn't know, and then we arrived in New Zealand, and he was still meant to be coming, and if I had thought about it, I would have realised, I think I said at the other session, sorry for repeating myself if anyone was there, um, that, uh, you know, he was never spoken of, really. My mother's big Catholic family, you know, no one ever said, so how's your dad, or... Have you heard from dad? Have you, know you heard that? from him, or anything like that. So there were clues that I did not pick up, um, but eventually, we started getting some letters. I later on will read a little bit, but um, that became sounded weird and irrational, as if he didn't quite know where we were. And um, so, you know, slowly, the um, the impossibleness of the situation just meant at that age, 
And in New Zealand, what was happening was crazy as well and chaotic in our family life. We were teenagers surviving. I left home at 17, and you're busy surviving on your own. Um, so uh, I think it was easier not to ask. It was easier not to look back at that point. Mm. I didn't do it consciously, but... But you were 18 when you found out that he was dead. But mm. he'd actually been dead for a number of months. Yes. Yeah. That must have been like, wow. Yes. Yeah, kick in the stomach. Because well, your mother then, was overseas at the time. Yes. She'd taken off with my stepfather and was living in Japan. And uh, my sister and I, and with my little brother, and my sister and I were kind of fending for ourselves. We could have gone. It wasn't like she abandoned us, but mm. she wanted us to go with her. But at that point, we were just like, no, no enough of this crazy family and we were <laughs> fending for ourselves um, and so for me it was this, just the two worlds were colliding you know I think what had happened was you separate that there was the world in Canada that just disappeared and that no one really spoke of and the new world in New Zealand and um, to this day when those two worlds collide if I hear from someone from the old world I had a friend who turned up and things uh, I find it very disorienting mm. So, yes, I think that was just a profound shock. And again, you know, there were no cards, no I'm sorry to hear this, no flowers, no funeral, no nothing. It was just... No closure. No closure of any sort. Mm. No, mm. not even acknowledged, really. Mm. My mother, we spoke to her, but she didn't come rushing back down or anything. Um, so we just kind of carried on in this void. You talked about the fact that he, your, your family was sort of on the skids before you left Canada. Um, and your father had been through something horrendous and he started to get rages sudden rages and, and things like that and you talk about he'd hit the table and the tea your tea mm. stains on the ceiling stuff like that um and did he ever explain or talk to you about what he'd been through no not really not a lot there were just um little moments mm. and I feel like I can remember every one of them but that may not be the case but where he, he talked about jumping from the train and rolling down a bank in the snow that's my memory of it and waiting to be shot, because if you jumped from one of these trains, there were guards, you know, along there waiting to shoot. And he, um, to his amazement, w remained alive. So uh, there was another man he jumped with, but whether they were still together at that point, I'm not sure. He took off into the forest, and that's where he survived. Fortunately, being liberated in July of 1944, because mm. I wonder, you know, mm. every minute that yeah. you're not in that situation counts. Um, and, and you thought that he'd actually hit in a box. That was your memory, and yes. you found out later that he'd, he that wasn't quite true. No. Um, he talked about, uh, you know, go, uh, having to go out and dig in the frozen ground, dig up potatoes and eat them with the dirt on them, things that I remember as a child because it was so foreign to our, our life. And, and I do remember asking questions that, as you do as a little kid, that would have been terribly painful, like um, how could you leave your mother behind? Um, questions like that. And his answer was pretty much, well, they would shoot you. Why didn't you run away? They would shoot you. Mm. Um, hard to understand as a child, it is, though. It yeah, is. Yeah. It was very hard. And then later on, just before we left, the documentary started coming out, footage of that part of the war. And um, I remember sitting with him watching this documentary of Auschwitz and the ghetto, and and he's his, him saying, I was there, and you just... And I remember just, all I could say was, what was it like? And he said, um, you wake up the next morning and the person next to you is dead. And that was 
as much of the conversation as I can really remember. Um, but, you know, in researching this, I've realized there, was, there were a whole lot of myths about this. And one of them was that people didn't want to talk about mm. it. And there were certainly plenty of people who didn't want to talk about it. But there were also people who did, but there was no one who wanted to listen. Uh, it was too, uh, too much to, you know, it's a conversation stopper, as I found in my own, own life. <laughs> you have to write a book to get it down. Cause oh, and so what did your father do? You know? <laughs> Well, <laughs> um, and the conversation, oh, God, you know. And, um, yeah, so I think he might have, I, I look back now and I feel like he put out these little... Yes, I thought that too. ...that yeah. he would like to talk about it, and possibly at the age I was getting to, I might have engaged with it, been able to engage with it. But also you have, like, my mum. They were together for a reason. She was escaping her own chaotic past, and... Um, her impulse was that don't upset your father, don't ask questions, and she didn't want to know about the past either. But she read she everything did. she could she find quietly, out about. Yeah. She wanted to understand him, him, as we all did. Yeah. I think that was a full-time job in our family, was trying to understand him, which was a futile task, but um, how could you ever, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I realised as a little kid I was always drawn to people who were a bit like him or television shows where there was a couple like... I Love Lucy with a ditzy wife, my mother, and this strange person with an accent who played <laughs> musical instruments and was in, had, got angry, you know. Yeah. Um, what was it? Happy face, angry face? Was yes, that, yeah. yeah you, you used to refer to him. Yes, daddy mad face and daddy angel face, I oh. thought of him, because if you caught him on a bad day, he was terrifying. He never lifted a hand. You know, he never smacked us or anything. The one time my mother told him to give me a spanking, we just both ended up laughing. But, um, <laughs> but his actual rages were terrifying, and they were seemed totally irrational out of nowhere. You never knew what would trigger it. It could be failing to eat your breakfast or something because so you couldn't prepare for it. No, In and no I think way. when things are, um, you never know when it's going to come. So I spent a lot of my childhood keeping my head down, and I was probably a little frightened of them, which I really regret because I think you know. Was were his rages? I suppose we'd label it post-traumatic stress mm. disorder now, or is it survivor's guilt? Well, I think it was a mix, yeah. a probably fairly toxic mix of both. I should think. Um, and I think, you know, again, my research, when I finally met my cousin Joe, who was my father's first cousin and was 17 when the survivors came back, and he met my father, when I discovered this in 2006, I was on the phone to him and tell me what, you know, and he was only 17, he didn't remember a lot, but he did remember that his mother was angry at my uncle Paul, who was also a survivor, because he had a few diamonds still sewn into the hem of his coat. And she felt he hadn't done enough to save their mother and other family members. And, you know, just the incomprehension that he was like in the 1% who would have survived. He survived my Uncle Paul hiding on the Aryan side in Warsaw. And he was, came close to death countless times. Mm. And he ended up very unwell at the end of his life as well. Um, but, you know, how can people understand, especially in those days, there wasn't a lot written about it yet. Mm. Um, I think the survivor guilt comes through, with, you know, from the auntie, Joe's mother, and also your uncle Sai, who you know was your father's um, brother, and he had escaped Poland before the war began. So yes. you know, and he was he was a very wealthy man in, in New York, but he also 
lost everything towards the end. Mm. Was that because you think of, did that happen because of, I survived, why didn't the rest of them? Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, I hadn't thought of it that way. There might be an element of that, but actually I just think the Wichita men were hopeless businessmen. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they were both very intelligent guys. My father, you know, he could speak seven languages, play any instrument he picked up. He'd read, he'd read Dickens, he'd read Tolstoy, he'd read everything. He was constantly trying to make us read anything but comics, which was a hard job, but... um, I remember him taking me to the library and getting out Pickwick papers and, you know, when I was about nine. Oh, God, you know. <laughs> and well, that's probably formed you. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I often, as you do, wish, you know, he'd been around for, for, for um, me to say, yeah, you were right. But, um, yeah, they weren't good businessmen, but they ended up in that line, as a lot of immigrants did. You know, he, was, he had a tailor shop because... You know, he he was a, an immigrant, and mm. that's what you did. But he was a real gentleman, wasn't he? I mean, he he courted your mother, yes, isn't that yes, word, as, yes. as a European gentleman? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, she had been uh, engaged during the war here to uh, an American, and he got shipped off um, with appendicitis, and she never heard from him again. And I, I think I was saying, you know, she got sick of. Um, dating boys in New Zealand whose idea of a good time was vomiting behind the dance hall. (laughs) So she took off to Vancouver and then she met my father, you know, in his beautifully tailored, clicking his heels and kissing her hand, bringing flowers and so there very quickly she was pregnant and they got married, so. I I was absolutely gobsmacked that she had to get pregnant before he'd marry her. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wanted to ensure that he, he had a family. That's right, he was nearly 10 years older so he would have been nearly 40 by then and he wasn't going to mess around. He needed to know he was going to have mm. children. Uh, and my mother was a black sheep Catholic and quite a free spirit, so I don't think that ever bothered her. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but um, it took a while for her to tell me that. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned in the book that, um, that your father had picked himself up once as a survivor, but when the pressures came on again, he couldn't do it a second time. No. And that was when he started to go downhill and and have the mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, it's always your own interpretation. But again, my reading suggests that's the case with, um, you know, a proportion of survivors, especially maybe older ones. He was a bit older. Mm. You know, the ones that maybe were teenagers kept that resilience. But uh, yeah, he picked himself up once he he had to live with all those things you're talking about, the grief and the um, survivor's guilt. And then when everything went down the tubes again, I think he just didn't have the resilience the second time. Uh, and and he wouldn't take any help, you know, from anyone by that point. And I wonder if part of it was when you left as a family, he'd lost his family once, yes. and then you left, so yes. he didn't have the resilience to follow you maybe the second time. No. No, well, I mean, that was another thing that I had in my mind, which I found the less awful option was that he hadn't, maybe we were too much for him by that stage and he hadn't really tried to come. But then I made discoveries that showed he had tried to come. So when did you get to the stage that you wanted to find out? You wanted to go back and look for what had happened to him? I mean, he'd, he'd had such an impact on your life. But when was it that you thought, I can't, I can't go through life not knowing anymore? Well, there were phases, I think. Um, you know, there were bursts of activity and I know my brother and I sent off for birth certi- uh, death certificates. We could never find one. And with my family, they were from Warsaw, and a lot of records got destroyed. 
And, you know, I have friends in similar, from similar families who have been able to find out. They were from a small village. They've been able to go there and, you know, even talk to people who knew them and mm. things like that. But um, in our case, everything was just a black hole. There was nothing to be found. In the end, I got so sort of weird about it. I thought, well, maybe that never happened. None of, you know, my father... All that Canadian stuff yes. <laughs> was just some sort of hallucination. Because <laughs> really, I thought, how can one family have so little evidence that they ever existed? Mm. Um, but I find now that's yeah, not uncommon. But I think, you know, as the years went by and um, the internet happened and things like, um, you know, the Jewish genealogy site and things like that, I was able to start Googling. And I remember the first day I found his name online. I was just beside myself. I think I ran around the house because it was just, you existed, we existed, it happened, you know. Yeah. Um, he was on a list of survivors. And then from then on, little, tiny finds happened. How much of an influence becoming a mother yourself had, did, it, had, did it have on you wanting to find out more about your father? Well, a huge influence. And I'm sure a lot of people would mm -hmm. have had that experience, mm -hmm. whatever kind of families, you know, suddenly you have the next generation and you realize how little you know uh, and also for me personally I think because of what had happened I I was 26 when I had my first child and up until then I don't think I really felt like I existed you know I was sort of wafting along but I had no roots we were kind of orphaned my my ex and I had no useful parents <laughs> on the scene and at I that think. time and um yeah, so I think when you go through producing a new life, I think you can have no doubts that you do exist because mm. here's the evidence. Uh, yeah, and I think that was a big They've been very drive. supportive of you, haven't they, in your search? Your kids. That got, yeah, your kids. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, amazing, amazing. Yeah. My, we've got two Bens, my son and my stepson, both Bens. I think that's lovely. You lost your father, yeah. Ben, but you've replaced them with two Bens. Yes, yes, mm. yes, that's right. Uh, it made for very complicated family outings, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, little boy, what's your name, Ben? And what's your little brother's name, Ben? <laughs> and I would, just, I would just have a serene look on my face. Yes, you know, uh, why not? <laughs> and then we had, uh, with my new partner, we had a daughter between us, and we thought briefly of calling her Ben as well <laughs> to mess with people, but we didn't know. Yeah, so, yeah, that, they've been amazing, and they are, were a real driving force. Uh, my Ben is interested. Um, it's part of his heritage, and he's interested. My, part, my stepson is interested and was one of the first readers of the book and incredibly affirming mm. and supportive. And my daughter and my nieces, who are all sort of in their 20s, uh, were kicking my ass basically the whole time. They were saying it's you know simply not good enough. You must find out. You can't not know where your father's buried. That's unacceptable. Get onto it. And oh, um, no pressure. No, no, <laughs> no. And then when we got the file, you know, I read it and with Chris, and then Monica came over and we read it together, just weeping the two of us together. She's the one that's sort of taken on board this story, even though she's the youngest. And so, yeah, they and their view of things has been the most comforting part of it. You know, to that, to me, it, it my father was just a tragedy, and he was. But you, you actually call it an irredeemable tragedy. Yes, yes, yes. And to them, they're like, you know, 
as my daughter said, that's some inglorious bastard's shit, you know. He was out there, look what he did, you know. He was a hero. He was a, and my nieces are the same way. And, um, you know, they've written things to him. They feel now they have a real relationship with him. And that's been the most, that's as near to redemption, I think, as... as Is it because they're one removed and they can actually not... Because you've admitted that you have felt huge guilt yourself. Oh, yes. Yeah, massive guilt over this, but they don't have to have that. Yes. I mean, my, one of my cousins said to me, you know, you didn't have a vote, you were 13. Mm. They're always trying to psychoanalyze me and make me better. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, to me, the guilt is something I don't want to get rid of because, you know, I didn't have a vote. And, you know, uh, and I have read things that suggest it's, it's easier to feel guilt than it is to feel helpless. Uh, and so maybe I'm hanging on to the guilt because the only other option is to have felt completely helpless in my own life and his life and, and the whole thing. But um, but I think it's the least I, I should carry is some of the guilt for that. You know, we were part of leaving him forever and, um, we d- you know, I feel like I didn't ask enough questions. Mm. But uh, you, you had a mother that would refuse to talk to you about him and... Or she was very good, but every time you asked a question, she would cry. So you learn as a person, you know, okay, we're not going to go there. Yeah. She also didn't keep much no. letters and, and things. No, and she never lied about anything. But I think what she did was to give the impression that he was beyond reaching and beyond being have a le- having a letter, receiving a letter from us or anything. And I think, certainly I've talked to my brother about this, who adores my mother, and so do I. Did I? You know, I mean, she's died in t- 2007, but I was very close to her. But I just wish she'd said you could write to him. But I think it was all too painful for her, and she didn't want to open that door. And I, I, while I can understand that, I regret that a lot, mm. yeah. You've got a reading which actually <coughs> sort of covers a little bit of that, that there was nothing left, nothing for you to grab hold of. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is from a chapter called On the Beach, where we were shipwrecked on Milford Beach in a leaking, mouse-ridden batch (laughs) when we first came to New Zealand. Uh, Once while working on this book, I wake at dawn heartsick. The day before I've been reading the only one of my father's letters we still have. It's to my sister. There is no moment in my life without thinking about you, he writes. I wish I could control it. I miss you all terrible. No kidding, it breaks my heart not to be able to see you all. No kidding, I can hear his voice. He adds, does Jeffrey, who is my little brother, remember me? Is he ever saying anything about me? I would like to know. My father's letters start to become strange, irrational. He's sending them to his brother Cy and Molly, Molly's address in New Jersey, and they're sending them on. He seems to think we are there, living with them. I see the postmark and I don't understand. Dad knows where we are, doesn't he? He saw us off on the plane to New Zealand. In my memory, the last phone call with my father always takes place on the beach, but of course it couldn't have. Now it occurs to me it might have been made from the phone box by the beach. Maybe my mother didn't want Nana to know she was phoning him. Call me at Christmas, he may have said. Let me speak to the children. We were in a batch on Milford Beach, in the batch on Milford Beach when the crate just seemed to materialise an emissary from another dimension. The world that existed now only in dreams and in letters to Anne. I know it was around March 1965 because I wrote to Anne, typing with many crossings out. Aren't I clever? We just got things sent from Vancouver, including this typewriter, hence this letter. 
There was our glass-topped mahogany coffee table. Why send a coffee table? <clears throat> there was a painting of a vase of roses in a frame gilded by my mother. She gilded everything she could get her hands on. <laughs> there was a New Haven mantel clock with a cherub and a vase painted with pastoral scenes. My father liked to go to auctions. There was also his crystal decanter and one little crystal shot glass. The heavy stopper of the decanter has since been broken and glued back together. I've never been able to bring myself to use it. Dad had packed just three volumes of the set of the Encyclopedia Britannica he'd bought from a door-to-door salesman. Only three of the 24? I remember my mother mentioning there were supposed to be three crates, but only one ever turned up. Perhaps the remaining volumes are mouldering with the rest of our stuff in a warehouse somewhere in Canada. I still have the painting of the roses. The other three paintings that came in the crate are long gone, including a street scene that decorated the wall of roses in my flat in Mount Eden Road until someone stole it. A startlingly ugly painting of a grim old lady sitting in a chair with her hair pulled back in a bun was quickly dispatched. My mother couldn't stand it. In Vancouver, it had been banished to the rec room. She called it Whistler's mother and thought my father may have bought it because it reminded him of his mother. But in the only picture we have of Rosalia, her face is soft and pretty and she's smiling. Mum rapidly sold the old lady in the chair to a second-hand store in Milford. As I write, it occurs to me she may have known by then Dad wasn't coming to New Zealand. Or maybe he'd told her to sell the painting. Not long afterwards, I was flicking through a copy of New, Zealand's, New Zealand Woman's Weekly when I saw a photo of our grim lady with a beaming new owner and the headline, Junk Shop Art Find. <sighs> Mum had got a couple of pounds for it. She was a child of the Depression. You did what you had to do. Years later, in the 90s, she would flog off another of the paintings, a large landscape of a path through a forest that reminded me of our family outings to Stanley Park. It took me a while to realize it had gone from the wall of the unit in Devonport where she and Stu lived in their old age. I begged her to tell me if she was ever going to get rid of anything else from Vancouver. We would pay her whatever she was offered. I tried not to sound cross, but she looked crestfallen and I felt bad. When parents run from their history, they also obliterate the history of their children. There's a heartbreaking scene in Art Spiegelman's graphic novel, Mouse, an audacious rendering of the story of his father, Vladek, a Polish Auschwitz survivor. Art's mother, Anya, also a survivor, ultimately killed herself. Art asks his father to find the diaries she wrote about what she went through. Vladek finally admits he burnt them after she died. These papers had too many memories. My mother, too, need to, needed to make a clean start. She sold my father's paintings and threw away his letters and the papers that would have told us where he was. But you can't so easily shake off the past. She didn't know that the things she needed to leave behind in order to survive were precisely the things I needed to hang on to. How can I judge her for this? I wasn't facing up to things either. When I wrote to Anne, I said, we just got a lot of things sent. It took a careful syntactical contortion to avoid saying, my father sent some of our things. When tragedy was arriving, crated up from Vancouver, I was writing Record Corner for March 1965. Good night by Roy Orbison. You've lost that loving feeling, Scylla. I've fallen in love with a snowman, little Millie Small. We went to see Scylla Black, Freddie and the Dreamers, and Sounds Incorporated, I wrote to Anne. Dave Clark is coming soon, and there are rumors the Beatles are coming back. I sure hope so. I wasn't going to tell Anne I thought my father had gone mad.
hard emotionally is it for you to read that? Quite hard. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, get I mean, easier. Yeah, and, and I just wonder that you, even though you've put it all down on paper, you still live every minute of it. Yes, mm. well, that's right. I, and I don't think that's going to change. I don't believe in closure. No. So, and I don't really want closure. And I think certainly working on something like this, it's the opposite. There needs to be another word like opener or something <laughs> because it actually opens up all the cracks and it changes you know, I think I say somewhere, you, or did you, um, uh, that everything you thought you, kn you knew turns out to be not the case, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of shutting the door on something. It opens up a whole new can of worms, really. Well, Daniel um, Mendelssohn said something like that, yeah. too, didn't he, when you, when you interviewed him? Yes. And, and if you'd sort of like to explain what he actually yeah. said. Yeah, well, Daniel Mendelssohn uh, wrote a book called The Lost. I don't know if anyone's read it, but it's fantastic. And it's about his great-uncle, I think, and three of his children who died in the war, who were murdered by the Nazis. And uh, I was, t you know, I, when he was coming to a, f a book festival in Auckland, I immediately said, please, please, can I interview him? And I did interview him, and he was fantastic, but I also took the occasion to talk about some of these issues. And, and you know, he said, you don't want closure. You, you want to leave the door to the past. Open the door to the past and don't close it again, you'll be amazed what happens. Put yourself in the stream of history. And, you know, I thought at the time, hmm, that sounds hard, but, <laughs> but it was actually just wonderful advice and it completely rejigged my feeling about the past because I'd always thought of it as back there and kind of unreachable. And suddenly I realized it's, it's, it's there, it's another dimension flowing alongside and you can dip into it any time. Yeah. And I think when I was writing this book, it was magical in that I almost felt I could recapture those times and, and be back there. And then you stop writing and you're, you have to face the reality you can't. But uh, yeah, what he said was profoundly influential in the whole way I looked at the past. Mm. And so my view is I want to stay in the stream of, of history. Uh, and he was always there, my father, not back there unreachable. Mm. Beside but, you? Yes. Do you think he stepped alongside you the whole search for him? Well, not spiritually, because I'm like him. He was a complete atheist, and I'm not a religious person. But I do believe that, uh, you know, I did feel definitely haunted. Mm. And I had dreams that if you wanted to interpret them as a visit, if you're that way inclined, then you would. And while I was writing in this little place, I got the Sargenton Fellowship, so we were in a little flat... Mm. by the edge of Albert Park in Auckland, up by the university. And um, while I was there, I had all these dreams and things. So, yeah, you know, I don't give it any supernatural reading, but it was certainly a connection, and it certainly made me feel these things uh, remain. You know, I always had this feeling, you know, and things get passed on at almost a cellular level in families mm. uh, that can't be explained just by... Well, you actually talk in the book about the whole thing of the grief, that survivor grief. It actually is intergenerational. It's not, it doesn't stop with the person who survived or, or went through a tragedy or a, you know, something as, as traumatic as the Holocaust. It actually does pass down. Yeah, well, I think you know, there's certainly research. It's funny how science catches up with what people sort of instinctively mm. feel eventually. Mm. <laughs> that, yeah, in epigenetics, some things can be... It's like birds, you know, they're... they're children can react to a, a, a threat that they've never experienced themselves, mm. but that the parent bird has. So I'm the parent bird. 
And I often scrutinise my children and wonder. (laughs) 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 My daughter blames me for being paranoid and (laughs) various things. Yeah. yeah, What do you think your father would have thought of the book? Yeah, well, that's the question. Yeah. um, I don't know. Uh, I I, I don't know. I think I'd like, would wish that he would be happy about it. I think he would be happy about uh, all those, you know, part of the book is just writing down the names of all the people, that, the ones I knew anyhow who were lost. Mm. Don't set me off. Right, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry. No. Um, you lost four generations, Dal. You know, no, no, totally I, I, understandable. What no, no, I don't, no, I mean, no, it's a really good question. And um, I, the answer is I don't know because he was unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he would be glad that I was an author because he would like that Wouldn't sort of he? thing. Yes, he would he, be glad He encouraged you to read yeah. and, and, and look at that. There's always times in your life, you know, I remember when I first listened to opera and he'd always been trying to make us, remember a ghastly morning when he ma- made me sit through Rigoletto when I was about seven or something, you know. Um, so it put me off for years and I just wish I could say, yes, you know, uh, I, I like it now. And, yeah. Oh, and yes, yeah. Yeah. So I think he, I hope he would have been pleased. And the same with my mother. Yeah. I think it would have been hard for her, but I think she would have been okay with it. I think the lovely thing is you've actually given him a face and you've given him a name and, and you've also given a face to four generations of, of family, which, if you hadn't done the book, they were lost in amongst the other six million. So, you know, I think that that is, that is a real credit to you. And I'm not going to get you started. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to move on. Now, in, 19, in 2010, you actually visited Poland. And you, you, Chris, your, your partner, was, um, was going over there. You weren't sure whether you ever wanted to go there, were no. you? No. So when you got there, and this is the soil that is soaked in the blood of your family, how was it? Well, I remember as we got off the plane and, you know, making that step through immigration, through, you know, the format customs, formalities, you know, I felt a real reluctance. It was odd because it's not very rational, but, um, but I do have other friends with similar backgrounds who felt that way too. But, you know, once I overcame it, of course, I found the place utterly fascinating mm-hmm. because I hadn't realised how close to that history it still is. Uh, I think during the communist era, the whole Jewish thing was really not spoken of. Um, I think at Auschwitz it was the 80s before Jews were actually mentioned as as sort of the primary people who died there. They really haven't grappled with that history a lot. I mean, at that official level. Um, and so everywhere we went, there was what I came to think of as slippage. If you asked a question, you know, this look would come come down... Mm. Because we stayed in a place called Kazimierz. I don't know if anyone's been there. It was the old Jewish quarter of Krakow. And it's been kind of done... It was sort of left to, um, you know, drug addicts and bohemians and things for years. And now it's been kind of done up like an old Jewish quarter, but there are no Jews, really. And there's Jewish restaurants, music... Knickknacks, everything, but you call very it like a few Jewish Disneyland. Yes, yeah. yes. People have called well, Jurassic Park. Someone <laughs> called it, <laughs> <laughs> and it thoroughly confused me. I don't think I'd read about it enough to really have got before I went. And so I'm like, okay, so yep, here's all these Jewish names. I remember going into a restaurant, and it was called Once Upon a Time in Casimirsch, and it had this in the menu. It said, you know, this is harkening back to the wonderful time when Jews and Poles lived together happily, and 
And I kept turning over the pages because they had the names of the shopkeepers up there and everything to see what had happened to those shopkeepers. Not a word. Because, as I think I wrote, you know, it wouldn't be good for the appetite to, to read <laughs> what had happened to those people. But it was like, sit at the sewing machine, you know, and it just messed with my head so badly. I thought, is this malicious? Is it anti-Semitic or is it just nostalgic? And in the end, I decided it was a bit of a, a mix of the two, of, um, you know, a culture that hadn't quite come to terms with what had happened. And so I think I felt quite alienated on that trip because that was the trip poor Chris had to drive us to, to Treblinka and we got horribly lost and the whole thing became a bit of a nightmare. We got there in the end. And again, that feeling of stepping on that soil. And, you know, I've got friends who refused to go mm. there. They just couldn't. But for me, I had the opposite feeling. You I wanted to, to lie down yeah. on the ground just about because it was as close as I was ever going to get to where they were, mm. you know. Um, yeah, so, when, and, but the next time, we went back five years later and we actually had a guide, we went around, I talked to Polish people, I met a righteous Gentile child of a family that had saved his school friend. friend yeah. And so, you know, you get a much more nuanced view and you realise once again your view is partly true, but, mm. but it's not the whole story. It's never the whole story. Mm. That there is always good in amongst the bad, yeah, just yeah. often the bad overtakes it. Yes, well that's right. And that, that country is just so fascinating because they're grappling with it right now. Um, with how to talk about this history. Mm. Uh, you know, people have written about the... There was a pogrom that happened after the war ended and the few survivors went back to a village and were slaughtered mm. by the locals, basically. Um, and the guy who's writing about that, Jan Gross, has been... I think he's still under some sort of legal threat from Poland. He's, he's a Polish-American, but he lives in America. But mm. if he went back there, in theory, he could be... You know, pros yeah. pros pros prosecuted over it, whereas um, you know uh, he's he he he's written a couple of books like that that are dealing trying to deal with that and and, and open up that debate. And there are a lot of good people trying to do that, but it's difficult. Well, you do you do mention in the book that there's almost like it's a Jewish um, people are just discovering that they're Jewish, you know, because oh, yeah, everything yeah. was lost. And, and I had something I never thought about. Yeah, well, it's I believe people have told me that. Um, Again, it wasn't a good thing to be at various points and no. well, many points in Polish history, um, but even after the war uh, and under the communist sort of regime, it wasn't necessarily a good thing to be mm. either. Um, so a lot of families just Never forgot about, about that, and mm. so their children grew up not really realizing that connection. So the good thing is, you know, festivals are happening and things, and that next generation who've discovered a bit of that heritage are reconnecting with it, and so things change, and mm. yeah. Did you feel it was home, homely? You know, like, did you feel that you had a connection with the land when you were in Poland? Well, I, that began to, because mm. I thought, you know, that's where they were from. Mm. That was their culture, at, you know, uh, uh, as well as being Jewish, they were Poles. Um, and so, yeah, I did. But I remember saying to Chris at one point, oh, you know, we could come and live here for maybe six months or a year and maybe work for an English publication or something, yeah. rent out our house. And he was like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't no. feeling the love quite so much. <laughs> but it's fascinating, yeah. And I would recommend, you know, it's a great place to visit. Um, we don't want to go into the there. your father because I think that 
we need to leave that for people to discover for themselves. You the know, whole what story. you found. Yeah, so, um, yeah. But can I? You know, can we talk about the fact that you actually now have a headstone for him? Yes, yes. And and how that must feel for you? Yes. Well, I mean that again. It's not closure or any of those things, but it's something you can do. Too little, much too late, but it's something you can do. And you know, I don't want to give away too much of what happens, but just suffice to say, he never had his name spelt right in his life, just the same as me. <laughs> and, um, and he ended up in a Catholic cemetery. Oh. So now this Catholic cemetery has this headstone which, with a big star of David on it and, um, uh, and quite a lot of text about who he was, so, which was a lot of negotiation in, in the family uh, about what exactly to put on there. Should my mother go on there? Yeah. And we decided she should, and I'm yeah. so glad we made that decision. They never divorced, and she did love him. She said to the end of her life she did love him. Um, so, yeah, and, uh, you know, some of our kids have been with us to see it. And, uh, and these and new relations that you've discovered, too, yes, they yes. were there. Yeah, uh, yeah well, th those ones I, ha I, I reconnected mm. with, the ones that came up. My New York cousins, that size children, we knew them... We knew they were there, and they knew we were there, but for many years we didn't connect. They had their own nightmare they were living mm. through as well with their father, even though he hadn't gone through the war. Um, you know, these things, yeah. So they had their own problems. And, yes, we've reconnected, and we... And, you know, I said to them sort of tentatively, because everything about this story for me has been tentative. I never assume anything, because it's all so crazy. And I said to them, you know, we're going to do this headstone. Would you like to come up? And they were there in a flash. Both, well, they've lived through both my this cousins with you. Yeah. and my cousin's daughter and the other cousin's two dogs. So we were oh. all there. <laughs> um, now that you've done, now that it's done, do you think you've still got more to find out? Oh yes. Oh gosh, yes. It'll never end as far. I've taken a little break at the moment yeah. because I think you know um, I'm regrouping. But there's always a possibility. Like stuff is still coming mm. out. More and um, more as yes. records become and. Yes. yes, there's places, you know, we went to the um, International Tracing Service in Bad Arrelson and they've got just millions of records and there were a couple of small finds there. Mm. But they have said, you know, um, new archives are opening up that have been closed for various reasons. So, yeah, I'll keep trying, I'll keep trying. And do you think that your children will also continue that quest? That ah, that's an interesting question, yeah, yeah. And you never actually know. I would say at the moment it would be my daughter, but you never know because mm. um, I don't think anyone... I was such a sort of disorganised and hapless creature, anyone would have thought I would do it. So. Well, no, that's true. You, you change over time, yeah. Really, yeah, yeah. No, still disorganised. Like <laughs> <laughs> you can't be. You've written this amazing book. You should see um, my study. <laughs> you, I must have felt when you were researching that it was one step forward, two steps back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And did you ever want to give up? No. <laughs> No, it oh. became a bit of an obsession, I think, and anyone, I'm sure, who's done that kind of a, yes, I see nods, <laughs> um, will know you can, and it's, I'm sure it's addictive, it's like a pokey machine, you get a hit, and you, mm. it's such a thrill, you're, mm. you're, you're back on there trying to get the next hit of finding something out, but I am very bad at it, and I've had wonderful help, my um, brother-in-law on Chris's side, as a lawyer, and he directed me every once, he'd do a bit of quiet Googling himself, Yeah. Uh, without even telling me, and he'd suddenly say, have you tried that archive? And two of the most useful hits I got were him directing me, so... I was going to say, was there one one point that you thought, yep, 
this, I've found something out now, or was it the file you talked about earlier? This is where I'm going. I, yeah. I, I, I can do this Well, now. that's right. I mean, I'd been approached to do the book, and I'd sort of said, yes, but I said it's going to be a very short book because I know almost nothing. Uh, so what year was that? That was probably around 2014. Right. And then we were doing this trip in 2015 to try and go back to Poland and find out more when I discovered this file. And then I just thought, well, you know, at least there is a story mm. because I know this. And we... Um, had to sort of rejig our... We ended up going to five different countries in five weeks. and um, oh, Three weeks, sorry. And my grandson said, you know, he was only about three. Or was, Diana, if you're going to five countries, you should go for five weeks. And I thought, yes, out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was this the trip you actually damaged your leg as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, that was 2010. That was 2010, yes. Oh, that was great. Yes, yeah. We just set off in, in Poland on the train. Oh, it was a train coming into Warsaw from Berlin. And... Um, we were coming back from having lunch and I stepped into the stairwell. I was holding my backpack in front of me because it was so crowded and I put my foot into the stairwell and just lurched backwards and it was the most surreal and, and almost, you know, we had a lot of black humour in our trip and, you know, there was this moment when I thought, I'm going to fly out that door and I too will fly out of a train <laughs> in Poland. That is just ridiculous. But... Um, yeah, so I did my knee, and I thought, Chris was saying, we're calling the insurance people, we've got to fly home. But luckily, with help from lovely Polish people who, where we were staying, and things and with bandages and hobbling, we, did, we managed to complete the trip. Tra tra traipsing through a lot of overgrown graveyards, I would add, so it wasn't easy No, and I mean, yeah. all the cobblestones alone yeah. are just really <laughs> uneasy on your feet. <laughs> if you could go back now, what is the one thing you'd ask your father? Oh, God. Is there one thing? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, well, oh, God, there's a million things. But yeah. um, I would like to know whether he did want to talk about it and whether... Yeah, I think that's the main question. I mean, there'd be a million questions. For instance, why did I never ask him? He told me a few details about which of his sisters was his favourite and things, you know, occasionally he would would be able to talk about that sort of stuff. And it was always happy memories, um, uh, fun things that had happened. You in know. fact, you, you used to make up games that were you with his favourite yeah, sisters yes, and yeah. yourself Yeah, until I realised what had happened to them all and fully realised what had happened to them all. But, um, yeah, I think, you know... I feel like he was denied that chance by the whole world and by us, in a way, um, because there was no help for him in those days. Nobody even really... It was just meant to be something you put behind you and carried on. Uh, and um, whether he would have taken any help, I don't know. I don't know. I think that you have to realise that the, um, the lifespan at Treblinka was two hours. That was the average lifespan. 90% of the Polish Jews died in the Second World War. And as um, we talked, six million people were killed by the Nazis. And it wiped out entire populations and families. And I think you're very brave to have written this, Diana. Very no, it's brave. not the, a good word to use. Well, I because think <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure that you might matter. have some questions for Diana. <laughs> and it's, this, this is the last chance to, to ask them of her in person. <coughs> Has anybody 
Yes. Yeah. Mm. Did anybody, everybody hear that question? Okay. Yeah, I think um, when that file arrived and I opened it up, you know, two things did happen, and one was I wanted to start with it in some way, um, and then the other thing was, you know, because for me those passages leapt out and were like daggers to my heart, you know, and I thought I'd like to put them up there even though they give away to, you know, you might say, and I did have some tussles with the editor over this, how much you do that or how much you just let it all unfold. But yeah, it was just important to me because for me the story, it unfolded chronologically, but it also was never a chronological story. It was a great mix of back and forth and past and present. So I thought, so it's nice to hear that you thought it would, mm. and it didn't spoil any of the, no. no. Oh, it's really good to hear. It's a teaser, isn't it? It's a lovely teaser. Bingo. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, and you know, I hadn't really thought about that, and someone did ask me that, and I've thought about it a bit since, and I am sure I wouldn't have felt as free, and I'm sure I wouldn't have written it quite the way I wrote it. I mm. uh, just imagine, you know, it would have been, even not consciously, it would have been, uh, yeah, yeah, it would have just held me back from maybe being as frank as I ended up trying to be. So, yeah, that's very true. I have thought about that, and I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think to begin with, um, once I started, you know, you go into memory and things start coming up. And so a lot of stuff came rushing out. And um, that's why you have an editor. <laughs> but I think given that, I mean, I was quite, I was being rushed to begin with with the book, but I pulled back from that a bit and I knew it was going to take time. So I'm very glad it didn't go out the way maybe it was very first written. Because, yeah, you were, you know, and possibly there was a bit of anger and a bit of um, uh, things that needed to be better digested before they hit the page. Uh, but, yeah, that's right. Um, but I tried to be very aware of people's feelings. And um, mostly, it was my mother's family I was the most worried about because they didn't speak of things in that family at all to the point where... My grandmother had two daughters who died, one at 30 and one at 50, and my grandmother never spoke their names again. Uh, that was it. You did not. We knew not to mention them. Uh, so, yeah, I wondered how the older aunties would take to it. So far, so good. Um, uh, as I've said before, I think I probably haven't heard from the ones that <laughs> are really cross about it, but I went to visit one of her cousins who appears in the book briefly, sort of indirectly. Um, 
he's in his 90s. And he'd read the book, and uh, I think reading between the lines, it wasn't the easiest thing for him. But he said, you know, he, uh, he gave me the impression he was, it was, he was okay with it. Mm. So I'm sort of getting up the courage to... to ring the aunties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ring the aunties, yeah, ring the aunties. There was another question right behind you. Well, I haven't really had that experience, I don't think, um, with German people that I've met. Um, I remember once I interviewed a guy whose parents had been very young, but been in the Hitler Youth, and he wrote a novel, The Book Thief. I don't know if anyone's read that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that was interesting, because there we were sitting, looking at each other. He was the child of people who'd been in the Hitler Youth, even though very young, and it was no, no guilt of theirs. But, and there was I, child of a Holocaust survivor, and that was fascinating. And the only time, you know, as I say, you get these little bits of slippage somehow. At one point, I think he said something about the myths about the Holocaust. And I said, and what myths would those be? With Did, you tell him? Did you tell him you were a Holocaust? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were talking about it. We were talking about it. Um, and he had his own things to bear, like he was researching in museums and... Um, in a Holocaust museum, and a lady said to him, um, introduced him to someone else at the museum, and said, "Yes, this is Mar uh, Martin Zuzak. Mar Martin Zuzak, wasn't Zuzak, it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his parents bear the, bear the guilt, and he was furious about that because they were, you know, thirteen, twelve, or something. So you know, so it works both ways for that generation. I think yeah. they have a pretty tough time too. Um, but yeah, I think the question I never ask when I meet Germans of that generation is. And so, what did your grandparents do? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to, but I've held back so far. <laughs> Any, we've got time for one more question? Yes. Could you just speak up just a little? So Absolutely, and I'm just gobsmacked, you know. I was I think I was saying, you know, over the course of writing, researching and writing this book, the world has changed in a way that I never, ever could have imagined. Even yet, you know, I, I know enough about history to know it can be two steps forward, one step back, um, or one step forward, two steps back in this case. Um, and, yeah, it's very hard to see that happening. And I was talking, actually, to a guy, a writer, who is Muslim and had been an extremist in his youth and is now writing about that and writing about Islam. And, um, you know, he said, well, that's what you get when you have a president who understands nothing about history. Uh, he doesn't see... And the, the, the thing he said, the connection, the um, image he used, he said, he doesn't see that what's happening there calls to mind what happened on those trains in Poland. Uh, families being torn apart and things. Yeah, so uh, it's just 
terribly, terribly worrying. And Nazis marching in the streets in America, you know, mm. I really wouldn't have. Uh, and you know, there's good on both sides. Oh <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> those yeah. those good Nazis. <laughs> Oh, Diana, thank you very, very much. And it's been an thank absolute you. pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for being part of our, our book festival. It's oh, been I lovely have, having you and Chris here. I could not have enjoyed it more. It's been fantastic. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you very much for having me. The book, Driving to Treblinka, is actually for sale here. And if you would like Diana to sign it, she will do so before she flies home to... Sunny Auckland. <laughs>